0: This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. Friendly living should be easy, but oftentimes it doesn't quite feel like that. Brightly believes that small, planet-focused lifestyle swaps can help us all fight back against climate change every single day. Part of being a conscious consumer means that when it's time to buy a new item, considering a product that is eco-friendlier than the alternative can actually make a difference. Brightly Shop focuses on easy, effective eco products designed to help you reduce waste and make smart, planet-focused decisions around your house every day, whether it's stopping food waste with our Veggie Saver bag or eliminating single-use plastic wrap with our bowl covers. Pick from dozens of our favorite eco-swaps that have been thoroughly vetted and tested by our team, including yours truly, who has just done so much testing. (laughs) So head to brightly.eco slash shop and use code Good Together to receive 20% off your first order with us. Good Together listeners, Um, today's topic is something that obviously is super, super um, relevant to the topic of conscious consumerism and climate change. I mean, look, we know that temperatures are rising all around the world. Um, and the thing that I, that we really wanted to get across is like, it's kind of feels like it's gotten hotter more recently, right? Like if you feel like the streets of your urban neighborhood are starting to get especially hot, you actually might be right. And so Climate scientists like Dr. Jeremy Hoffman are studying what's called the heat island effect, um, which is an infrastructure, equity, and climate-based issue that results in higher localized temperatures than those experienced in outlying areas, which is super interesting. So, climate change is undoubtedly turning up the heat on this issue, but there are definitely things that you and your community can do to help, starting with learning about what the heck a heat island actually is. So I'm really excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jeremy Hoffman. Um, and uh, Dr. Hoffman, I would love for you to give a really brief intro of yourself and really uh, the work that you're, you're you're doing right now.
1: Sure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, uh, hello, everyone, listeners. I'm Jeremy Hoffman, and I'm the David and Jane Cohn Scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia and an affiliate faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University in the L. Douglas Wilder School of Public and Governmental Affairs. Um, Basically, I am a climate science communication expert. I've been working here at the Science Museum of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia, since 2016, developing and executing uh, science communication and research programs that really make use of deep community engagement, uh, immersive exhibits, and educational programs. Uh, starting in uh, really summer of 2017, we worked on developing a community science approach or leveraging uh, nonprofits, university partners, volunteers from the community uh, here in Richmond to actually analyze Richmond's urban heat island effect. And this approach, this kind of community science approach to understanding urban heat islands in cities has now grown into a national Program at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate Program Office it has actually been used in over sixty cities nationwide.
0: Wow! So that that's amazing. So so your your research really helped to kind of spark this initiative, which I love, and we love NOAA over here at Good Together and Brightly. We just did an interview with one of their scientists, and we're actually kind of in their backyard over here in Seattle. <laughs> so it's it's a very um, really interesting uh, you know comparison there, and so thinking a lot about um you know your role as both a scientist and a communicator right like let's kind of think more about how we can tackle the approach of um you know how to best solve for heat islands so maybe we can get started by just like discussing like what is a heat island
1: uh so i love trying to put this into uh, a way that people can can really you know understand it in the summertime you know here in richmond virginia uh, and across the country, you know, Northern hemisphere summers, we all know it gets hot. Um, you know, there are days when walking outside feels like you're going into someone else's mouth and what, uh, is going on there is there's, you know, the, kind of the, the background climate climatological, um, uh, uh, summertime feature are heat waves, but yeah. yeah. Within within cities, within where people live, um, it doesn't even necessarily have to be the most urbanized places, but where we where humans have changed, um, you know, the natural uh, landscape into something like buildings, roads, other infrastructure, these places actually absorb more of the sun's energy uh, throughout the day and then reemit it back into the air as heat throughout the afternoon and into the evening. So urban heat islands are small uh, areas where the air time or the, the air temperature, excuse me, is elevated relative to the outlying rural or more natural landscapes outside of a city. Now, what's really interesting about our research is we've been looking at just how much temperatures can vary within a city. Yeah. So we know that that on average Urban areas can be, you know, seven, 10 degrees warmer than their outlying rural areas. But what we've been investigating is just how much the temperatures can be different within the same city on the same day during a heat wave.
0: That's fascinating. And honestly, unless you've lived in an area that is kind of known for these little like mini microclimates, um, it this is going to be something that's very new to you. And I I say that because I'm based in Seattle now. I'm from Texas originally, but I spent quite a few years in San Francisco and San Francisco is just very well known for, yeah, having these little mini climates throughout the entire city. So if you're, you know, closer to the water, you're obviously going to have a little bit more breeze and and, and cooler air, but just even within the tiny city itself, there were all these like funny, um, you know, quirks that would arise out of the different neighborhoods. And so, you know, you're right. Um, Jeremy, I feel like there was, there's such an, almost like a misconception of people saying, well, of course cities are hotter, right? Like there's concrete and buildings and, you know, all of these things that we kind of, you know, create, you know, think about in our, our, um, overall thought process of this, but it's not just saying something like that is oversimplifying it. Right.
1: Sure. Yeah. And it's really the balance between two extremes, you know, it's, the the in any given neighborhood or place in a city um the balance between the amount of tree canopy and green uh, greenness you know just just a uh, uh green infrastructure you know as i like to call it um versus the human infrastructure the the parking lots the roads the buildings um those two extremes really help determine everything in between um, that you can experience in a city from the very ultra shady park um you know that uh, that people go to to run on a on a even a warm day to the big box store parking lot in the middle of the kind of suburban periphery where there's not a tree in sight um for you know <laughs> what would might seem like many miles um and so really that's what we're talking about is is even within a city there are so many different little combinations of those two kind of, um, extremes of, of natural and human landscapes, that that's really what sets the, uh, the, the thermostat of a particular neighborhood during a heat wave.
0: Wow. I mean, so, so again, like, I feel like that's news to most of us is just understanding like how that actually works. Um, and you know, so, so so maybe tell us a little bit more about like you know how are these these heat islands actually getting caused
1: right so so these these things that we've d- discovered how to build cities out of i mean uh bricks asphalt uh blacktop you know all of these different surfaces um fundamentally change uh the relationship that the ground surface has with the sun um and what it does is to these, these surfaces have very low albedo is the scientific term, but really you can think about it as the reflect. Yeah. It's the reflectivity to the incoming um, sun's radiation. So much like if you were to be deciding what to wear on a, on a, on a hot day, you know, you might go for a lighter color, um, you know, many, but much, much thinner material Uh, much like that. Our, um, you, you know, our built surfaces tend to be like the darkest, thickest densest kinds of materials yeah. and these things with their very low reflectivity or their very low albedo um those things absorb more of the sun's energy and then actually just emit that back into the air as heat um and so if you have nothing but those hard surfaces in a particular place um those with within a city those particular spots those intersections that you might you know plop yourself down at a at an intersection on a four way or you know four- way intersection with four lanes in each direction, um, and not a tree in sight. Those places can be you know as much as 16, 20, 25 degrees warmer than the coolest spot in the city. Wow which te- yeah, which tends to be defined by very old, mature trees, um, very, very skinny, limited capacity roads very um uh in some cases uh, relatively tall but sparse building types um and so it really is this uh this this balance between shade and um natural green space and that kind of um all one form style of human development that you know, we tend to think of when you think of a car dominated, you know, landscape, that's really where we find the warmest temperatures.
0: Wow. I mean, so, so it makes sense, right? Like, I mean, that to us is like, you know, thinking about like how the natural environment, I think, influences, you know, like we're talking about heat absorption and things like that, I think is is really interesting. And I think, you know, from the perspective of just general, um, I guess, uh I'm trying what's the word I'm trying to think of the perspective of general like uh, pleasingness to the eye right like we're going to gravitate towards environments that do look more natural right like they they just are more inviting they're a little bit less stark like you know they allow us to really i think connect better to the world around us but unfortunately a lot of our our modern cities are just so optimized for you know building and you know transportation and all these things but they're obviously having a big impact on the temperatures.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting, um, you know, when I talk about these kind of extremes, like green being cool and, you know, dark being um, hot, there's actually a lot of other interesting variables that help determine a neighborhood's temperature. So you brought up, you know, kind of uh, transportation, you brought up the building style. Um, It turns out, actually, that even in the, our research has shown that even in the Uh, kind of most built out parts of cities um, uh, where the tallest buildings exist. You might think that that is going to be the warmest place in a city, but it's not the building heights uh, because the buildings are much taller than the streets are wide. They actually cast shadows onto that pedestrian environment. So when we, when we put our um, kind of volunteer community scientists out around a city during a heat wave, we actually see lower air temperatures in the densest urban core parts of a city um, because of those shade canyons that are created by the building heights being much wider than the streets and it It, it becomes ca- kind of counterintuitively that that then the neighborhoods that are actually the warmest here in Richmond, for example, we have a city uh, neighborhood called Scott's Edition. And in many North American cities now, we're taking these post-industrial manufacturing neighborhoods and renovating them to be cool, artsy loft spaces. Okay, um, y- You know what I mean? And so there, th- that's where a lot of uh, urban growth has been for uh, in places like Vir- Richmond, Virginia. Scott's Edition was a big manufacturing hub. Now all those old warehouses have been uh, renovated into living spaces. Now, what that didn't do was to change anything about the rest of the built environment. So it still has really, really wide streets. The yeah. buildings didn't really get much taller. There wasn't a fundamental change in the number or age of the trees. And so now this neighborhood is by far the hottest neighborhood in temperature during a heat wave. And it's the hottest uh, uh, kind of um, colloquially speaking in how fast it's growing. Wow! Um, so it's kind of this interesting balance where, where you think the warmest temperatures might be kind of the, the, the densest urban core part of the city um, actually has some of the lower temperatures because of the shade canyons, that are uh, cast by the very tall buildings. So it's the places where the wide the street is much wider than the neighboring buildings are tall that we see uh, paired with very low tree canopy. Those are the neighborhoods that tend to be the much the, the the very hottest neighborhoods in a in a particular city. Wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, so again, this is something where. You know, I I feel like I had an opinion on it. Now I'm just learning so much and it's just really, (laughs) really interesting. So let's, so now that we kind of know like how this, how um, heat islands are getting caused, um, I would love to know a little bit more about like, what are the impacts of heat islands? Like, obviously we get physically hot when we're walking around and, you know, we we feel it a lot ourselves, but what about maybe some, some other sort of, um, you know, macro um, effects that are going on?
1: The impact of urban heat islands and more generally kind of human settlement uh, in urban areas itself has foundationally changed the way that some systems work, uh, including like uh, if something as as simple as when trees blossom. Uh, <laughs> trees yeah. tend to bloom earlier because of urban heat islands. So like, you know, that they fundamentally shift when a season changes. Uh, uh happens the, the the animals that live in urban areas uh ex- have, have earlier um egg laying times and uh have uh you know nesting times that occur earlier than their outlying rural um, things so it 's not just the human experience of urban heat islands that we can trace um into uh the the ecosystem of of our cities as it were but w- when it comes to humans, there are a lot of really important impacts um that uh urban heat islands have we know that in these neighborhoods that tend to be warmer, um, they uh, tend to have much higher uh, rates of energy consumption. So um, these places that are hotter have to use more energy to cool down those, those indoor temperatures. If cooling down our indoor environments is accomplished primarily with air conditioning, and most of the country still relies primarily on fossil fuels for their electricity, You can see how in these particular neighborhoods that might be warmer and using more energy, then there's this positive feedback of we need to cool things down, but we're using more fossil fuels to that create more emissions that then feed back into the climate system as further raising the thermostat. So um, there's kind of a a double-edged sword there of um, the impacts on energy consumption and then where we get that energy from feeding back onto the root problem. Yeah. Yeah. There's also an interesting um, uh, issue that we've seen happen in a few cities around the country. The Pacific Northwest, for example, I mean, you lived, if you were in Seattle a couple summers ago, 2021, um, pretty uh, significant heat wave event. We saw significant damage to infrastructure, Um, things like roads buckling. Um, It can get so hot that uh, roads can fail uh, if they weren't designed to withstand that kind of uh, temperature variation, and my colleague Vivek Shandas in Portland, Oregon, found a 25 degree difference between the coolest and warmest place in the city of Portland wow. uh, at the during that heat wave. So um, that 25 degree difference can be can mean the difference between whether your road withstands that heat wave or succumbs to some sort of damage. Um, we also see some kind of like. Downstream, quite literally, effects in, in how heat islands impact the health of our streams and rivers in urban systems. So, a lot of the times in the Northern Hemisphere during the summer, uh, especially here in the Southeast, um, we have summertime convective rainstorms happen in the middle of the afternoon. You know, all day it's hot, that hot air is rising, it rises high enough to condense into clouds. And if it's uh, a a, a updraft that's uh, strong enough, that creates rain. So if all day those hot surfaces are just baking in the sun and then all of a sudden you dump a bunch of water on those surfaces, water has a very high heat capacity. So that water, as it's running into the sewer systems, warms up very quickly. And most of the time that water then runs directly into our waterways Um, that can uh, provide this kind of shock, this acute stressor to these aquatic ecosystems in our cities um, uh, through, through affecting our, our, our sewer water um, getting really hot out of nowhere. So um, this has a huge impact on the animals and, and plants that are living in those aquatic systems.
0: Wow, I mean, I wouldn't even you wouldn't even think about you know the 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 really the truly downstream impact there, but I mean it's it's real and I mean just the for for me just even knowing this like twenty five degree variance you know in Portland I mean that's a huge difference both in terms of you're right a road buckling or quality of life for somebody or um, you know affecting animals so it's it's, this is obviously a huge problem.
1: Well, well, yeah, and then you're getting to kind of the most significant thing that we can tie. Uh, urban heat islands too, is is a um, uh, f- foundational difference in the heat, in the risk associated with that extreme heat event. So here in Richmond, for example, we were able to show that um, our map of temperatures in the city during a heat wave corresponds uh, virtually one-to-one to places that have higher rates of heat-related illness responses from the ambulance. So these heat island areas of our city are where people are calling for help during a heat wave many of these people work outside they rely on public transportation they may be um you know uh, a houseless individual so it's really the 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 the, um it tells you a lot more about the kinds of uh residents in our cities that uh, are disproportionately impacted by this which we'll get to in a little bit i know but the also we know that during these heat waves and in hotter areas um we t- we tend to have um, more chronically ill individuals so okay. um, yep. if you if you have asthma for example on a hot day your asthma will be negatively impacted by that and yeah. if you live if you live in a neighborhood that has hotter temperatures you are going to be more at risk of an adverse asthmatic event than someone living in a cooler part of town so there are huge connection points between chronic illness and heat exposure in our cities and we, we didn't really learn that, uh, any better in any other place than in Chicago in 1995, where, uh, you know, uh, and I guess in Portland last, uh, in 2021, where, uh, also this major portion of our population, elderly, uh, people in, in communities of color, uh, disproportionately succumb to heat related illnesses. And unfortunately, in the case of Portland and Chicago, um, uh, wound up, uh, experiencing um, mortality events. So. Um, this the heat island effect can be um, traced to disproportionate rates of morbidity or illness and mortality or death uh, during these heat wave events in cities
0: yeah and i mean it it doesn't it's not surprising i mean mean, oftentimes when we think about just rising temperatures across the world like many many of these cities were not built to withstand such heat like we've been talking about and one of those um you know big um you know indicators is there's so many people that don't have air conditioning or ways to cool their their spaces down we talked about like how problematic it is to just rely on air conditioning to cool ourselves down but i mean it's it's unavoidable in a lot of cases so you know just just thinking through you know many many people just don't even have the ability to do that and so you know it, it really is rough and it's it's not like this is a problem that's um you know, been going on for a long time. I mean, the, the the temperatures that have have been rising relatively quickly. So it's not just like, oh, well, you know, why don't they, why didn't they build that house with air conditioning? It's like, well, they didn't need to build it with air conditioning, you know, 30 years ago. So it's, it is, it's a really, um, it's a, it's a hard problem for people to understand that grew up in places that have air conditioning. Like I grew up in Texas, everybody has air conditioning. It's a necessity of life basically. And so when I moved outside of that, um, I was just floored that, yeah, I mean, the home that we live here in Seattle did not have um, you know, air conditioning. So we we installed um some split units here. But you know, fr- from our perspective, it's it's it is just such a it's it's an un- really unfortunate um, you know, I think need that we all have now, which is which is rough. And you kind of mentioned this earlier, but I but I wanted to to talk even more about um, you know, the the equity problem here as well, because you know, in addition to thinking about air conditioning, it's very expensive. Um, and it's, you know, typically found in um, you know, uh newer buildings and all these types of things, like, you know, how can we talk more about this socioeconomic piece of um of the heat island impact?
1: Right. So so, you know, I guess starting with the air conditioning um uh is a great way to talk about that. So um, you know, uh, a new study recently came out linking uh, the prevalence of air conditioning to uh, race, income uh, across, you know, a, a oh yeah, that's not hots-
0: surprising in the least.
1: Yeah, right. Yep. And 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 the question and and what we asked ourselves when we, um, you know, first did this in Richmond in 2017, and then as we grew our campaign into other cities, looking at the socioeconomic data of where these hotspots were occurring, the same picture was coming out of every single city. It was uh, poorer communities of color. Um, experiencing higher temperatures than anywhere else in the city, and uh, many times um, this is linked directly to a a, a total lack of tree canopy, um, green spaces. Um, you know, air conditioning prevalence. Um, these places also tend to have higher energy burden, meaning that they spend more of their income on their energy bills than uh, in other places, and are usually experiencing higher rates of. Uh, uh, energy costs um and it's it's you know when you when you start to see that picture in virtually not only heat related data sets uh, but we started to see that with things like food deserts uh transportation access um, educational outcomes home ownership credit scores there needs to be there is there is a systemic thing going on there if it's the same picture in every city regardless of really where you're looking and so um, my colleague and i uh started looking at what w- one potential system to explain this and this is uh, a practice known as redlining in the in the 1930s and 1940s yep yeah. uh, basically you know uh for for listeners who might not be familiar um redlining was the practice of basically denying access to home loans um for uh you know Either uh, the F- F- Federal Housing agency or the in this case the Homeowners Loan Corporation, basically deciding uh, to grade neighborhoods and cities all across America. Um, along uh f- four different grades and much like your grades in school they get worse as you go down the line so a graded neighborhoods were green lined and and you know a lot of uh, investment mortgages mortgage insurance were made available to those individuals all the way down b c and d d graded neighborhoods were drawn with a red line and uh and actually considered hazardous um to financial investment and so um, my colleague and I had been made aware of these maps and how they'd been linked to these socioeconomic outcomes. You know, uh, kids growing up in these formerly redlined areas of cities tended to wind up with lower credit scores, lower home ownership, less access to a vehicle, um, more likely to be incarcerated. All of these sorts of socioeconomic outcomes. Um, and uh, w- what what we asked was, well. What about the the environment? What about their climate change risk? Sure. Um, and uh, in J- January 2020, we published a paper that showed that in 94% of the cities that had this treatment, uh, which is almost 250 cities nationwide, um, that these formerly redlined areas of cities were physically warmer than their non-redlined counterparts um, uh, by several uh, degrees, uh, as much as, you know, uh, seven to eight degrees Celsius uh which is like 15 degrees uh Fahrenheit. Um, yeah. and so you know, when we look at how we got here, um, this redlining practice, you know, it was supposed to be about the financial security of these neighborhoods. But actually when you look at what motivated their decision, it largely had to do with the the color of the skin of the people that were living in those neighborhoods and 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 their immigrant status. So almost without fail, um, neighborhoods that were given redlined uh designations were Um, uh, poorer, lower class laborers, uh, communities of color and, you know, new immigrant communities um, all over the country. And so what this does is not necessarily cause these heat islands to occur, but kind of locks these neighborhoods into being environmental uh, disamenities. Um, And probably in the generations ever since then, you know, uh, we've concentrated the building of arterial roads into these neighborhoods. We put the interstate system into these neighborhoods. We, um, you know, invested green amenities into the non-redlined parts of our city. So over time, this has probably gotten worse um, and has exacerbated this heat risk. Um, But it's not just heat risk. It goes beyond that to things like air quality now has been linked to this redlining history. Flood risk has been linked to this redlining history. And so when we think about the urban heat island effect, it's really a great way to open the door into discussing all of these other societal issues that we care about and want to and want to be a part of the solution for.
0: Yeah. No, it makes it makes total sense. And it's something that's really, really important for us to to think about as we, you know, think about solving the problem. And so that kind of brings us to I think like the sort of the last part of this conversation where we really wanted to leave people with some actionable tips and tricks on like how can we as a society um help reduce these heat islands and and make a difference. Yeah,
1: yeah um and I, I, this is probably my favorite part of the discussion because um really we have uh, an entire buffet of options. You know, you can imagine yourself walking into a buffet restaurant. <laughs> you don't tend to just take one thing, right? We don't just focus on one item of food on a buffet and much like that we should be thinking about all of the options we have for urban heat islands like a buffet too and unfortunately right now too many times we're trying to focus our attention on one thing we need to be really um ordering from the whole menu instead of just one item okay so um most of the time these solutions break down into one of two buckets and you can think of it as kind of answering these two questions will it will it physically lower the temperature of the city uh, and then, you know, how do we respond to the acute shock of a heat wave? So it's, there's kind of these two things. And the the first question is mitigation of the urban heat Island effect. How do we actually turn down the thermostat of our cities? And then number two, that the second bucket is how do we manage the governmental or the societal response to those acute, um, to the acute stressor of a heat wave? So, um, and those two things can can be kind of thought of as as separate, but ultimately we need to be doing them at the same time. How do we turn down the heat is actually pretty easy you know if the cause of the urban heat island effect is you know physics, we can use physics to fix it so in that case, you know most of the time we're talking about things like planting trees, yeah. uh, changing the color of these surfaces to be less dark, we talk about increasing the building height variation um in, in in cities we can talk about lowering the width or re- restricting the width of str- of uh, of roads actually depaving those areas to become mm-hmm. new parks um at the same time um uh you know doing things that are more immediate scale so providing shade structures at transportation stops um we can be talking about uh places where pedestrian um activity is concentrated Doing things like shading in the summer, or providing things like um, misting gardens, and uh, and and those sorts of uh, interventions. So those are those are the ways that we actually physically turn down the temperature. And so for listeners, this could be things like planting native trees in your backyard, contributing to a campaign at your HOA or in your, in your neighborhood, finding a nonprofit that's already doing, you know, green space improvement projects and volunteering. And then on the other side that like, how do we respond to the acute shock of a heat wave? That's really more of stuff that we can be talking to our elected officials about as well as contributing to on our own. So this would be things like, um, you know, uh, understanding where and how people access cooling centers. So okay. this is places, yep. you know, these kind of places where people can walk in um and like a library or a um you know, some sort of public space yep. that has cooling infrastructure like air conditioning, access to cool water, um but then may might also uh provide uh you know, education resources about how to identify um heat related illnesses. And provide resources to community uh, projects that might be doing things like providing access to fans or air conditioning units that people can put onto their uh, into their windows or something you know a simple window unit can be the difference between life and death for some people um, and so uh, what these cooling centers can do is really serve as almost like a resilience hub for these individuals and in neighborhoods um, that might need to rely on um, on, on you know air conditioning or some other form of cooling than they would have available to themselves, but then there's also things like how, how does how does our uh, emergency management uh group you know understand the risk of heat how are we how are we uh dispatching um you know potentially interventions like uh, first responders or um, doing reverse nine one one calls to individuals yeah. that have higher rates of um, of reaching out for help you know where are our uh, elderly and chronically ill individuals um, where are you know and, and how are we dispatching resources uh, in in advance of and during these heat waves to um, reduce the shock of that of that particular event at any one time and so you can see how all if you were to do all of these things at once, you can really approach uh, a, a level of heat resilience that many of our cities do not currently have. Um, And by doing both the kind of mitigation or turning down the temperature and managing our societal response, we can really be improving the, the outlook as climate change continues to increase the frequency, intensity and duration of these heat events that are amplified by the urban heat island effect.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't said any better. It's 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 not just just solving this this problem on a relatively small scale. If we consider it the problem of climate change, it's about you know making steps to solve this problem while also not losing sight of the bigger goal and the bigger problem at hand. And so, I think that that makes total sense from from my perspective. the The fact that we've been able to have this conversation about something that we've all heard about um you know and and really just heard on the news and had had people just you know kind of in our ear about for me it's just been eye opening to be able to discuss this in a way that is factual um that has you know actionable tips for us and is something that i think we're all going to be paying more and more attention to um as everything continues to heat up
1: well i'm so glad to have been able to talk about it i mean i think some people like you said earlier i think we all in our mind's eye, know that it's more comfortable to stand under a a tree than in the middle of a parking lot during a heat wave. But it wasn't until we started to really show people just how big of a difference that is across a city. You know, here in Richmond, it was a 16 degree Fahrenheit difference between the coolest and warmest place at the exact same time during a heat wave. It wasn't until you start to put that scientific data behind it that people start to see it as a thing that they can act on in their own backyards. You know, too often climate change is seen as this thing that's so far away in space and so uh, not happening now in time. What the urban heat island effect does is to really activate people in their own backyards, in their own neighborhoods, in, in taking direct climate action that ultimately prepares us for the changes that are, that we're experiencing due to climate change. Because I think What's interesting is even without the threat of climate change, even if climate change had never happened, the urban heat island effect would still exist. And so, uh, you know, even if it's, it's a really great way to get people that might otherwise not participate in climate action to get involved in, in their own backyard, in their own neighborhood, in taking meaningful approaches to reducing this, this, uh, this really damaging stressor that we experience uh, getting worse every single summer.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, um, you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. This is something that's just a really important topic. Um, Dr. Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us and listeners. We will include links to a lot of the resources and information that we talked about in today's episode in our show notes. Um, and yeah, just thank you so much for joining us.
1: No, thank you, Laura. I appreciate the invitation very much. Uh, and, and I'll look forward to hearing, uh, hearing the episode myself.
0: joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together. So have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.